Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. As you probably already know from one of the previous joint services that we had not too long ago, our church is going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've entitled the series uh, Encountering Jesus, because what seems to be at the heart of Luke is a desire to tell us the story of Jesus so that ultimately we come to understand that he is a person who is worthy of our trust, worthy of our deepest faith, worthy of surrendering our lives to and experiencing the transformation that can happen when we do so. And the title of the message today is Who Touched Me? And it comes from Luke 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. So I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles. And we'll also display the text up on the screen so that you can follow along. Luke 8, verses 40 to 56. And it reads, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceived that power had gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed to no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. God, grant to us an understanding of what faith is really all about and help us to understand what Jesus calls us to do in light of what he called these people to do 2,000 years ago and grant to us um, the work of the Spirit in our lives that would enable us to respond in obedience and faith and trust to that call of Christ in our lives. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. I want to make a brief announcement that's I apologize for the harvest people. It's going to be sort of specific to Emmanuel, but starting with this message and then moving forward, I've made the um, decision that 
all of our scripture readings and all of the texts that I'm going to be referencing in all my messages are going to be taken from the ESV Bible from now on, the English Standard Version. Uh, we've up to now, for as long as I've been preaching at Emmanuel, been using the NIV or the New International Version. But starting this Sunday and moving forward, uh, we're going to be using the ESV, which uh, is just a bit more of a literal translation and so has a certain level of precision that um, I think will be really important in the passages that we're going to look at in the days ahead. I also want to mention that originally I had intended to preach about both this bleeding woman and the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, but um, it was becoming an enormous message. And anyone at Emmanuel knows this is like a broken record. I cut it in half. And so this week we're going to only look at the bleeding woman, and then next week we're going to look at Jairus' daughter and the resurrection miracle that occurred there. Last week at Emmanuel... We looked at how Jesus and the disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee on a boat. And they went over to a region called the Gerasenes. Most likely these were Gentile people, not even Jews. And in this kind of foreign land, they came across this demon-possessed man who met them at the shore. And his name was Legion because the implication is that he literally was infested with thousands upon thousands of demons. Uh, It's the most dramatic example of demon possession that we find in all of Scripture. And under the influence of these thousands of demons, he became a violent lunatic, running around naked among the gravestones, terrorizing the people and cutting himself. But once Jesus delivered this man, the change was immediate and dramatic. As he suddenly came to his senses, put on clothes, and calmly sat at Jesus' feet, completely in his right mind. And one of the things that we pointed out in that message last week was that Jesus brings hope to even the most hopeless situations. If ever there would be somebody that we would be tempted to write off as utterly unredeemable, it would have been this naked lunatic running around a graveyard, jumping on people and attacking them. But... One of the points of that story is that there's nobody outside of God's reach who cannot be redeemed. But the strange thing about this whole story is that rather than rejoicing in that event, the townspeople witnessed this miracle, and instead of celebrating, their response was actually fear. Fear. And so they asked Jesus to leave them and said, Go away from us. We don't want anything to do with you. And so Jesus left. It's interesting that Jesus scared the pants out of them more than this demon-possessed man did. Because the demon-possessed man was a problem. But it was a problem that these townspeople felt they could contain. At least we can chain him and set guards around him. But the power that they saw coming out of Jesus was much more threatening to them. Because they realized this was a power that they were not going to be able to control. This was a power that they couldn't even understand or wrap their mind around. And it seems almost unbelievable that people could react like this when they encounter God's power. But even today, I would argue, this type of response that the townspeople of the Gerasenes had is far more common than we like to admit. I shared last week about 
How doing campus ministry at U of I for 10 years, I saw this phenomenon over and over again of God doing a mighty work in the hearts of these undergraduate students whose lives have been flipped upside down and become radicalized and become passionate for Jesus and want to give their life to missions or do some great cause in the inner city of Chicago. And instead of even their Christian parents rejoicing, they were often threatened by it and angered by it because this work of God in their lives was threatening their own dreams, their own hopes for their children. And so they respond with fear, with anger, with frustration. Husbands and wives often feel threatened when their spouses experience a powerful encounter with God, trying to do everything in their power to put out that fire of revival. Why? Because they're afraid. What happened to my wife? I want my husband back. This is not the man I married. And so... We want to restore the marriage to that which was predictable at least. To the way things used to be, the status quo. Even as pastors, we can resist the work of God in our churches. Even as spiritual leaders. If we feel that what's happening in our church isn't revolving around us, you know. When God suddenly takes over and we feel like we've been marginalized, That happens very commonly in churches where often the pastor himself can be the one that puts out the fire in that church. I mean, this is what happened in the spiritual leadership in Jesus' day, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees were Jesus' worst enemies because they were angered that Jesus didn't pay enough homage to them. And the revival that was happening in Israel wasn't centering around them. Our marriages our lives, our finances, even our churches may be a mess. But we would rather live with that mess and be the one calling the shots rather than surrendering control to God, which feels far more risky to us. What we need is a faith that can overcome our fears, enabling us to surrender control of our lives to God. Jesus never calls us to be heroic, but simply to put our trust in him, believing that our life is better under his leadership than our own. And that is a leap of faith, isn't it? Because we feel as long as I can manage this, as long as I can call the shots, I feel somewhat good about it. But when I feel like suddenly God is pulling the rug out from under me, I don't like that feeling. I don't like it at all. I want to be the captain of my ship. I want to be the one who's in control of my family, my career, my life. And so what we need is a faith that can overcome that fear and say, God, take control. Take control of my life. I surrender it to you. I'm making a mess of this thing, but I give the leadership to you. I skipped over one last detail in the story last week uh, because of time. And I want to make brief mention of it today. It's the final detail of the story. And it says this in Luke 8, verse 38 to 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. After the man had been set free of the oppression of these demons, he begs Jesus, Let me become one of your band of twelve. Let me become one of your inner circle of disciples. And I will go with you wherever you go. Interestingly, Jesus refused and said, no, you can't do that. 
Instead, you go back to your own people and testify what God has done. Jesus understood that the biggest impact that this man could make was to be a witness among the very people who saw what he was like before Jesus healed him. You know, it's rare that I've met a person that has become a Christian purely because of a debate, of an intellectual debate. Or, you know, I, I think I know like two people in my life that became saved when they read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Right? You've got to be a really brainy nerd to come to the faith. I apologize if anyone came to the faith that way here in this room. But let's be honest here. Almost nobody becomes a believer because of a rational argument. Quite often, though, we become a believer when we first come to a first-hand encounter with somebody in our life that has been changed by the gospel. And it shakes the very foundations of our belief in life. And I think that's what Jesus was doing with this guy. Go back to the people that knew you when you were this raving lunatic madman running around naked among dead people. Let them see with their own eyes the difference that I made in your life and the other transformation that occurred. At the heart of what it means to be a witness for Jesus, it's not necessarily about knowing all the arguments against atheism or Islam as important as those things may be. It is simply the ability to testify to others of the difference that Christ has made in our life. At the heart of being a witness is the ability to testify. This is what Jesus did for me. Well, having delivered this demon-possessed man named Legion, uh, Jesus is chased out of that town, interestingly, And so they all get back, the disciples and he get back onto this boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee to the other side and return back to his hometown of Capernaum. There is this huge crowd that is already waiting for him. As I pointed out a few messages ago, around this point in Jesus' ministry, this is the height of his popularity. His fame has now just exploded throughout Israel so that record crowds are gathering to hear his teaching. And so much so that quite often he finds he has to go into a boat in order to preach so that he doesn't get crushed by the people that are trying to get a glimpse of him. And so this huge eager crowd is waiting for him at Capernaum. And so they touch down on shore, they get off, and suddenly this man named Jairus approaches Jesus. Now, we're told that Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. Um, This means that he was clearly an important person in Capernaum. Uh, It would be like the mayor showing up, you know. Um, And if Jairus was like any of the other religious rulers of that time, in all likelihood, he probably did not think very highly of Jesus. uh, Because that's the stance that the religious establishment took with him. Um, they didn't really like the trouble that Jesus was causing in their synagogues and in their religious services and in the temple. But Jairus had a 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter, who was deathly ill. And all he could do was impotently stare at her as her life was ebbing away. And so... He does something unthinkable for a man in his position. In front of everybody, 
he falls on his knees and he takes hold of Jesus' feet and he begs. He begs. And he pleads with Jesus, please heal my daughter. Save her, Jesus. You're the only one that can. You see, whatever problems that Jairus may have had with Jesus' theology or the quality of his disciples or all of these other things that were such big deals to these Pharisees and Sadducees, in that moment, I don't think any of that mattered to Jairus. All that mattered was that his daughter was dying. And Jesus was the one person in Israel that demonstrated that he could do miracles. And that he could wield the power of God. The Pharisees certainly couldn't. And so he was desperate. And in that moment of desperation, he knew in his heart of hearts that Jesus was his only hope. Jesus agrees to go with Jairus to his house. And so they start heading off. You can imagine the electricity that must have been in the air that day. The people came hoping to see a show. And boy, were they going to get a show. Um, they have just witnessed one of their most respected religious leaders groveling on his knees like a beggar. I mean, that alone was probably worth the price of admission. But now they were going to get to see a miracle. And so you could just picture the scene in your own mind of the celebration that was going on. I, I, I mean, I picture like one of the young men elbowing his friend and said, you're the one that wanted to go home because you were sick of waiting. But I told you this was going to be worth it. This is going to be awesome. And so everyone is rushing to Jairus' house to see the great miracle that Jesus is going to do. So in mass, the entire crowd starts marching to Jairus' house. In verse 42, we're told, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. That word pressed in Greek literally is translated as choke, to choke someone out, okay? In other words, this was not a calm and orderly march to Jairus' house. This was an unruly mob. It was pandemonium. Everyone must have been shoving each other as they were jockeying for the best place to watch this miracle happen, trying to get as close to Jesus as possible so that they could have a front row seat to the events that were about to unfold. And in this excited frenzy, they almost end up crushing Jesus. This is like Black Friday type of rush, you know? Um, And then well before they reach Jairus' house... Jesus does something totally unexpected. And he stops dead in his tracks. And he looks around, and I don't know what facial expression he had. I'm guessing he looked kind of stern. And he addresses the crowd, and he says, Who touched me? Um, Can you imagine what you would have been thinking if you were in the crowd that day? Um... I think the immediate reaction, especially the people around him, must have been, oh man, someone's going to get it. Um, We're told in verse 45 that every single person denied touching him. Now, if you don't see the humor in that, you really don't know how to read the Bible, okay? Um, Every last person in that unruly mob says, hey, it wasn't me. I didn't touch him. And then finally, Peter speaks out. Now, this is what I love about Peter. 
He probably puts his foot in his mouth more than anybody else recorded in scripture. But he also has the courage to say what everybody else is thinking, but is too much of a coward to say. And so he becomes the spokesperson for this crowd. And he says, um, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing on you. In other words, Peter was saying to Jesus, no, no disrespect, Master, but that's about the dumbest question that you could ask in a situation like this. Who is touching you? Who isn't touching you? <laughs> Everybody is touching you. But then Jesus insists in verse 46, No, someone touched me because my power went out. I perceive that power has gone out from me. It's at this point that this bleeding woman realizes that she isn't going to be able to quietly disappear from the crowd with no one realizing what had happened to her like she had hoped. In verse 47, it says, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. For 12 years, as long as Jairus' daughter was alive, this woman had been struggling with this female bleeding problem. Now, I, I was worried about talking about this. This is an awkward conversation. Do, do we have junior high kids in this room? Okay. I'll, okay. <laughs> oh, boy. So, uh, <laughs> all right. I was hoping that there was a special program for them, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be less graphic. During my years of medical practice, um, these women who had chronic female bleeding problems were um, some of the most miserable women uh, that I had seen as patients of mine. Uh, I remember this one particular woman who had repeated surgeries and every drug under the sun. Uh, and it was finally at the point where we just finally decided to go with the, the final step of giving her a hysterectomy. But up to that point, she had been struggling with this bleeding problem for so long that she was actually on antidepressants and was near suicidal. I think for most of us men, we just can't wrap our mind around this, you know. Uh, but probably for you women, uh, you could be a bit more sympathetic to what this woman must have been suffering, having continuous bleeding for 12 years. Mark tells us in Mark 5, 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And if you read the historical documents of what the doctors used to prescribe for this problem, it's insane. They used to make the most disgusting potions that you could imagine and force these poor women to drink them. And of course it didn't heal them. They even had this whole thing where they had to drink this whole thing and stand on an intersection of a road and then someone was supposed to come up behind her and surprise her and scare her half to death and that was supposed to chase the blood out of her or something like that. I don't know. Maybe she got rid of her hiccups. But uh, if you just read, it's like no wonder she didn't get any better. 
It's interesting that Luke, who was also a doctor, is a little bit more sympathetic to these doctors than Mark was. Um, I guess that code of not throwing your fellow doctors under a bus existed even in those days. But Luke does tell us uh, that she basically blew her entire life savings on trying to get better. But not a single one of these doctors was able to cure her. But you know, as miserable as it must have been from a medical standpoint, that really wasn't her primary misery. It wasn't where her main problem came from. Uh, Because this is her main problem. In Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25 to 27, it says this. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, uh, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. You see what happened to her? Because of her bleeding problem, she was ceremonially unclean. She would have been forbidden to offer sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem for these 12 years. She was not allowed to attend a synagogue worship service in her local town in 12 years because of her uncleanness. She was basically treated like a leper. And so for over a decade, people were not even allowed to physically touch her. Her husband could not even sleep in the same bed with her, otherwise he would be perpetually unclean. He would not have been allowed to even be intimate with her. For over a decade. Historians tell us that if she was married, in all likelihood, she was divorced. Because what they know is that in those days, there would have been no Jewish man who would have tolerated such a situation like that. Would have given her papers of divorce and said, get out of my life, you unclean woman. And remarried someone that he could sleep with. Not only could she not touch anyone, but everything she touches becomes dirty. She's a pariah. Nobody wants her in their house. She is not invited to any dinner parties. She is welcomed nowhere. You get the sense of how utterly pathetic and desperate this woman's situation is. Utterly cut off from the community of her people. It's not surprising, therefore, that she tries to remain anonymous through this whole event. Because in order to reach Jesus, she's going to have to go through a lot of people. She's going to invariably have to make physical contact and dirty a lot of people. But hers was an act of desperation. This may be her only chance to get the healing that she so desperately wants. And so it seems like what this woman finally said, she came to a resolve... And so when Jesus gets back, she said, I'm just going for it, you know. 
I'm just going for it. I don't care how many people I make ceremonially unclean. I'm just pushing my way through that crowd. And maybe, just maybe, if I could touch the edge of his clothes, I will be healed. And that's what she does. Now, I want to draw out some lessons that we can learn from this whole story, about three of them, in fact. And I'll close with that. The first thing that I want to say about this story is this. It's important to recognize that this woman's understanding of how power worked and how faith worked was pretty flawed. It was pretty flawed. In fact, she seems to have embraced the kind of magical, superstitious thinking that was popular in Jesus' days, which was this. That if you could touch something that was proven to be an object of power, then, or even if you could sort of come under the shadow of that object, then you could receive whatever you wish for in your life. It was like throwing a penny into a wishing well, you know? It's that kind of superstitious, magical thinking. Jesus is an object of power. So if I can just touch him, then I'll be healed. But what is interesting to me is that even in her flawed thinking, Jesus still heals her. But I also think that this is one of the reasons why Jesus would not allow her to slink away anonymously. In verse 48, he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He calls this woman out because he wants to make sure that she understands, I am not some kind of magical totem that anyone can touch and get their prayers answered. And so he tells her, it's because of your faith that you were healed. It's because of your faith. As imperfect as your faith was, your faith is that which healed you. Because this is what we could say about this woman. Despite her magical thinking, despite her superstitious beliefs, she at least got one thing right. She knew that Jesus was the answer to her problem. In other words, she got the one thing right that mattered over everything else when it comes to faith. It is that Jesus is the one that can save us. He is the one that can deliver us. God helps us in our moment of need despite our imperfect faith. God helps us in our moment of need. He answers our prayers. He will often deliver us even though our faith is often imperfect like this woman's was. And I think this should be a great comfort to many of us who struggle with our own feelings of inadequacy when it comes to our own faith. Maybe you struggle with this understanding of how it's all supposed to work and theologically it's still kind of like a jumbled mess in your head. And maybe you're fearing that this is why God is not working more powerfully in my life because I just still really don't get it. I mean, what does it really mean to trust in God and lean not on my own understanding? I don't even really know what that means. I mean, how do I know when I'm really depending on God or just fooling myself? Am I doing the right thing? Am I saying the right words? Or am I just messing all of this up? Maybe you're worried that you're phrasing your prayers all wrong. I'm calling, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to pray to Father God. I was praying to Jesus all this time. No wonder. Or, 
whatever it might be, you know? I'm willing to guess that a lot of us struggle like this. You know? If only I knew how to do this thing right, God would give me the things that I need in my life. You might even have a lot more superstitious thinking in your head than you realize or care to admit. But we should take comfort that the, about this truth that this bleeding woman demonstrated, that God's grace is able to even cover over the flaws in our faith. Of course, God wants us to grow in our faith. Of course, He wants our understanding to increase about how it all works. That is important. I'm not discounting that. I'm not saying, ah, just, you know, throw anything at the wall and see what sticks, you know? And, you know, I think God will do something in your life. But I think often we put all the pressure on ourselves, feeling like it's all up to me. But I think if anything, as we look at the pages of the Gospels, we see a lot of messed up faith. A lot of people that don't have it all right. And yet despite that, Jesus delivers. He answers. He helps. He hears their prayers. And that's an amazing comfort to us. Just think about this man Abraham, who is lifted up to us as a man of great faith. In fact, he is the father of all of our faith, we're told by Paul in the book of Romans. If he is the paragon of faith, I don't feel that bad about my own faith. Because this guy messed up royally a lot. God promises your descendants will be as great as the stars in the sky. I'm going to take care of you, Abraham. Sarah will bear a child. And Abraham just didn't believe. He couldn't. So he impregnates his slave girl, Hagar, and tries to take matters into his own hands. And God says, he is not the one. This is not what I was talking about, was to get any young hottie and get her pregnant and go, there you go, miracle done. No, Sarah, Sarah is going to be the mother of Israel. Yes, 90-year-old Sarah is going to be the one. And then he ends up in Egypt. And Pharaoh takes a liking to his wife, Sarah. And Abraham is all discombobulated. He doesn't know what to do. He goes, oh my God, the king has eyes for my wife. He's going to kill me out of jealousy and take her. So again, he chickens out. And he says, ah, that's my sister. <laughs> Go ahead, you can have her. <laughs> great husband, you know? What a great guy. All husbands should be like Sarah. Take her, I'm out of here, you know? God knows Abraham messed up when it came to this faith thing. How in the world did he end up becoming the father of faith? You know Why? Because even though he messed up over and over again, and even when everything around him seemed hopeless, he had one thing to his faith that was credited to him. He came back to God again and again and clung to that promise that God gave him to the end of his life. And God says, that's enough. That's enough. What is essential is to realize like this bleeding woman did that Jesus alone is the answer to everything that we need in our life. This is the one non-negotiable aspect of faith. Don't put your trust in anything other than Jesus. So that when you have failed and feel like giving up and are so disappointed with yourself, come back to Jesus. When the situation has gone from bad to worse and it seems utterly hopeless, come back to Jesus. 
If your faith rides in nothing else, let that be at the heart of your faith. In whatever ways I have failed, I come back to Jesus because he's the only hope. He's the only one that can rescue me out of this mess that I've dug for myself. And often God says, that's enough. That's enough. I can work with a faith like that. Jesus also calls this woman out of her anonymity, not only to show her that it wasn't magic that healed her, but also because he desires to have a relationship with her. He addresses her in such a kind and tender way that it's almost a little uncomfortable. He calls her daughter, daughter. The Gospels do not record Jesus addressing any other woman in any other situation by this intimate term of endearment as daughter, only to this bleeding woman. She was healed, in other words, not because Jesus was like some kind of supernatural light bulb emitting miraculous power, but she was healed because he loved her. Because he loved her. Because she was his daughter. You know, all she wanted was a drive-by healing, I think. She, in essence, if you really break it down, this bleeding woman just wanted to use Jesus for his power. You know? Just a drive-by touch. Yeah, got it. You know? Now I'm off and I'm good. And you know, I think a lot of times we're the same way. You know? We're not really sure we want the relationship with God. We just want the power. We just want the answered prayers. We just want the miracle. And so, frankly, when our lives are going well, we sort of wish that God would sort of stay out of our business and just leave us alone. It's not until we enter into a moment of crisis that we suddenly cry out to Him and want Him in our lives. But God says, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. God helps us because He wants to have a relationship with us. He answers our prayers and shows us His power so that by doing so, we can learn how to put our trust in Him and enter into a relationship of faith with Him. He says, I'm not just throwing out my power and answering prayers willy-nilly, but the reason why I work on your behalf is so that I could draw faith out of you and out of that you would come and follow me. And realize that what you need in your life, even more than these things that you're asking, is you need me. You need me. And that's what Jesus was doing to this woman. Daughter, go in peace. The last thing that I want to say about this woman, and I'll just close with this, is this. I would argue that this woman didn't really know what she needed. She didn't. She didn't really understand her own needs because I think this was her thinking. If I could just touch Jesus and be healed and this bleeding stop, that's all I want. That's all I ask. I'm good. I'll be fine. And what Jesus was saying to this woman is, what you need is so much more than that, than for just the bleeding to stop. And what I want for you is so much more than that. I want to make you whole again, even if you may not want that for yourself. You see, I think this is why she sort of made a spectacle of this woman and in essence embarrassed her in front of everybody. was because 
What Jesus was saying was, I want you to think about your life right now. And I want you to think about how broken your life is, about how you are treated and viewed by your townspeople and what everyone thinks of you. And maybe you just sort of come to a place in your life where you just accepted it and said, this is how it's going to be. This is how I'm going to be viewed. And in front of everybody, Jesus wanted to say, this woman is healed. She is fully restored. She is clean. Accept her. Accept her back into your community. I don't think this woman could have even ever in her wildest dreams have hoped for something like this. You see, she was willing to settle for something much smaller. But what Jesus wanted for her was so much greater than that. I don't want to just make you stop bleeding. I want to make you whole again. I want you to become a vibrant part of this community again. But there was a cost, wasn't there? She was going to have to stand up in front of everybody and acknowledge what happened. And I think that was a price that she wasn't sure she would be willing to pay. But Christ forced the issue on her and said, you know what? I know what you want, but this is what you really need in your life. And the last thing that I could say out of this is this. God knows better than us what we really need in our lives. And so that's quite often why you can pray one thing, but God may often do a different work in your life. And quite often the work that he does is not always welcome. This is not what I asked for. This is not what I want. Just give me what I want. And God says, you know, you don't really understand what you really need. You know, I think it's very possible for us to pray those kind of short-sighted prayers like that. God, just fix my husband. Just fix him. Set him straight. Or, God, I don't know what to do anymore. Deal with my kid's temper problem. Because the kid's becoming a wreck. Or his impulse control issues. And what God may be saying is, if you think that's at the heart of the problem, you haven't even begun to understand what I need to do in your life. You know, often our prayer requests are so short-sighted, are so narrow. Just, just, I need a Band-Aid solution because this thing is so painful. Just stop the bleeding, God. Just cauterize the wound and I can fix the rest. I'll figure the rest out. And God says, it doesn't work that way. When you pray for me to work in your life, you got to invite me in to the whole life. And I may need to do some surgery in your life that can even be embarrassing, that even can be painful. But what you want and what you really need may be two very different things. And I just want to challenge you with that even in your own life. What are the things that you want God to do for you? To bail you out of a ditch or to rescue you out of a mess or fix a problem that you feel like is just really bothering you these days at work or in your family, in your marriage, among your friendships. And maybe as you begin to pray that prayer, God is going to start doing some things in your life that you go, oh, wait a minute. This is not what I asked for. This is not what I want. I just asked you for this, God. So just give me that. And God is going to say, I am going to give you so much more. I am going to give you so much more than you have ever asked for.
because I know what you need more than you could ever realize. Let us pray. As we think about this bleeding woman, it's hard not to sympathize with what she must have been going through. And I think um, in her narrow thinking, uh, she had a lot of issues, a lot of problems with her faith. It was very superstitious. It was very mercenary. There was no interest in a relationship with God. She just wanted to use Jesus as a source of magical power to fix the problem as she defined it, which is to stop the bleeding. Jesus stops, dead in his tracks, and looks around. He's not going to let her get, get away with it like that. This is not cruelty. This is love that caused Jesus to put this woman on the spot and cast the spotlight on her in front of everyone. And he says, who touched me? Who touched me? Trembling in fear and probably a whole lot of embarrassment, this woman steps forward and says, it's me. And she explains to the entire crowd what she has been suffering for 12 years and says, when I touched you, immediately I felt my body healed. And Jesus says, you know, as flawed and as imperfect as your faith is, my love for you is greater. Behold, daughter, be fully restored. Maybe you feel a bit frustrated that your prayers feel like they're going unheeded. And you're putting all the pressure on yourself. Like, gosh, you know, I just must be doing something wrong here. And, you know, like, it's always a struggle of feeling inadequate every time you come to God and ask anything of Him. But if these encounters with Jesus recorded in the Gospel tell us anything, we see that the people who regularly came to Jesus were filled with all kinds of theological shortcomings and flaws in their faith. And yet, the love of Christ overcame all of that. This woman did not ask to be singled out like this that day. But Jesus says, you know, I'm going to do for you something that you don't really want, but you need. And I'm going to make you whole today. And by my authority, I'm going to make sure that this community re-embraces you. That you are not stigmatized. And that day, that woman got a far greater gift than she could have ever hoped for. Not only was she medically cured, she was made complete. And so Jesus says to her, Go in peace. My shalom, my peace be upon you. And I just want us to think about our own struggles with faith in light of the story. The ways in which we struggle. Maybe one of the things that God is saying to you is this. As much as you've messed up, as much as you try to take matters into your own hands, as much as you're filled with all kinds of superstitious thinking, could you just get this one thing right and realize that Jesus is the only answer? Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't spiral down in despair. It's never hopeless. 
It's never too late. I can reach out and rescue you. What you need is faith to believe that I am your only answer. In Christ alone do I find my salvation. And then I want you to think about this. That as you invite that work of God in your life, He may take you down some roads that you did not expect and frankly did not wel- do not welcome. But I can I also invite you to have the faith to trust in what God is going to do in your life when you invite Him to work in it. Often what you think as the band-aid solution that will get your life back on track falls far short of what God wants to do in your life. And he says, you know, the surgery that I want to perform in you is far greater than that. I want to make you whole. You know, you just think that I'm going to fix your family, fix your financial situation, fix your friendship with a little tweaking. But I'm going to just do a surgery in your heart that you could never imagine. And when you see things on the other side, you'll be amazed at what I've done in you. That you could not have even imagined. But it takes faith to surrender to a process like that. Say, God, do your work in me. Whatever needs to happen, do your work in me. Would you just pray like that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a brief time of response? Because Jesus loves you and me, he is actively working to deliver us from a shallow relationship with him, where we come to him with our needs and we try to walk away and live in the fringes of his presence. Sometimes in spite of ourselves, he will draw us into a deeper place with him because he loves us. So may God give each of us the grace this week to not run from him, not fight him, but to open our lives to this great invitation to a Jesus who wants to give us even more than we know to ask of him. May you encounter this Jesus this week and be blessed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.